Titus chapter 1, and this evening we'll be in verses 5 through 9. Titus chapter 1, 5 through 9. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Lord, It, it's truly a humbling thing to be a leader in your church and to read texts like this and passages that teach us what you desire to have in terms of leadership in your church. And as we study, Lord, we pray that we would be both instructed by this and, if necessary, rebuked by these words, Lord. They don't exist in a vacuum. This isn't some just peculiar leadership manual that applies to only a select few, but is in fact the very instruction for the church at large so that we might know how we ought to function in a manner that's pleasing to you, God. And so I pray that you would take these things that we are going to read and study tonight and encourage us with them. Shape your church with these words, Lord, so that we might become as a congregation more like the way you would have us to be, Lord. In your name, amen. Amen. Well, Paul, we looked at last week his introduction and saw just how weighty and um, deep that introduction, in fact, was. I want to remind you of the words that Paul said. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in the hope of eternal life. Now, that's Paul's mission as an apostle. But I want to present the fact that this is also the mission of whatever leadership of the church should be. This is where we should, as I should, as a pastor, where anybody who's in any type of church leadership, whether it's Sunday school teacher or deacon or pastor or what worship leader, whatever it is, this should be the goal for us in terms of how the congregation should have their needs to be met. 
We all come the door with certain, what we might want to call felt needs, and some churches have latched on to that and have discovered that that's a way to grow a congregation quickly and develop multiple numbers by saying, oh, here's some needs that people perceive that they have. And so if we can take some Bible verses and apply that to their lives, then they're going to have their felt needs met and feel very good about what they heard and experienced and maybe go out there and become a better person. But all that really has done is create churches that are more invested in bettering your life now rather than seeing you, like Paul says, go from being elect all the way to the hope of eternal life being experienced by you. Michael Horton has famously critiqued this movement and calling it moralistic, therapeutic deism. Now, I don't think he originated that phrase. I can't remember the guy he got it from, but he certainly popularized it. Moralistic, therapeutic deism, right? You can understand that. People coming in the door, they're coming to a church, meaning they want to hear a moralistic message. Some kind of morals they want presented to them. They want some kind of word that gives to them, that gives them some kind of psychological benefit as well. This is where the therapeutic comes in. And it would be really nice if we heard God's name mentioned a few times as well. Thus the deism. Now you might hear, honestly, in some of these churches, God's name mentioned um, quite frequently. And sometimes you'll hear God's name mentioned more at something like the Grammys than you would in some of these churches. But needless to say, that's what people have unfortunately tapped into. And we shouldn't be surprised because remember in 2 Timothy, Paul told us that people will accumulate for themselves teachers who want their ears to be tickled, right? Who want to hear a tantalizing little word. But that's not Paul's goal for ministry. And I don't believe that's why Paul sent Titus to Crete or, pardon me, left Titus in Crete. Rather, the reason he did so is so that those who were elect might know the truth, and those who know the truth might grow in godliness, and those who grow in godliness might have the hope of eternal life, and that as they progress from elect all the way up through to spiritual maturity, that they have a spiritual focus that's being met, and they are always pointed to Jesus Christ. You, when you come through these doors, you will hear moralism, for sure. It'd be weird if you didn't, right? Therapy? Now, I am not here to try to better your id and try to stroke your superego. I could care less about those things. In fact, I would love to smash those things. Tear those obstacles of your faith down so that you are less focused on yourself and more focused on Christ. I'm going to be perfectly honest. There is some value that comes with some kinds of therapy. I totally get that. There's a common grace that does exist in that realm, much like it does exist in healthcare realm, right? We're thankful for doctors. We're thankful for those who want to provide healthcare to us. But it goes far too far because... That realm 
has an overemphasis on the self, and you need to focus less on yourself and more on God. So while there's a time and a place where it might be good to go talk to somebody else about what's going on on the inside, what that needs to do is end with you being in awe of God, not more caught up in the minutiae of your own self. Because you, my beloved, are by nature a child of wrath. And although partially you are sanctified, and although you have been spiritually born again, there's still a whole lot left that needs to be mastered by the Spirit. And that still wants to dominate and control you. So while you might get some psychological benefit from coming to church, you are not going to get therapy sessions. And finally, you're not going to get a deism. You're going to get a raw and unashamed Trinitarian focus. In fact, I'm going to look for the Trinity everywhere I can find it. And I'm going to put it in your face and go, look at it, look at it, look at it, look at it. (laughs) And the reason I'm going to do that is because you are far better off looking at the Trinity, focused on God, and loving Him than you ever could be with just a simple, moralistic kind of God stamp on something that makes you feel better. You need a grand and great vision of the biggest triune God that I can possibly try to explain. And I am only going to do it justice if I go to the pages of Scripture and keep your attention there. And even then, my language is going to fail you. But I'm going to keep pointing you back there and pointing you back there and pointing you back there. And I think Paul, in beginning the letter like this, is giving Titus some helpful tips on how he can not only bring elders up in leadership, but give those leaders instruction and what to give their people as well. So Paul says he's been entrusted with the preaching by God. The preaching of this message. And then he goes on to say, this is why I left you in Crete. So we don't have a record of this, interestingly. Paul and Titus going to Crete specifically and planting churches there on that island in the Mediterranean Sea. Clearly they did it. Clearly Paul felt confident in Titus's abilities and spiritual abilities to be able to do <clears throat> what needed to be done. First interesting thing I want to point out here, and we had a, a discussion on Monday night in our guys' study, and I wasn't thinking in this direction then, but during this week I had thought about this. What constitutes a legitimate church? We went round and round, and I think we... we we delineated what makes a const- or constitutes a legitimate church very well. I don't think there is much left out. But one of the things that I notice now after reading this text is that you still have churches that are existing and have been planted without solid leadership. So I want to say that there could be, and there probably was, I'm arguing this is a good case in point, of there being true legitimate churches without the appropriate leadership actually being in place. Now that was not to stay that way, right? In fact, hopefully what it, it makes you think of is kind of like here in America we had circuit preachers, right? Where there was little pockets and towns where there was just 
you know, a few dozen people who were farmers and there was maybe a general store or something, but there was no actual church building established for them to assemble. And so you'd have these Methodist and Presbyterian circuit riders that would go from town to town to town and they would go to maybe a dozen different towns. And so you would hear a sermon maybe once every three months because that's when your circuit preacher came around. But you see, as that happened and the churches grew and those towns expanded, what you would find is that you would find men who would want to go there and pastor in those towns. The towns would erect buildings so that a minister could come and preach to them the gospel and preach to them the word of God. None of us would say those weren't legitimate congregations of gospel believers. And I think that's what's going on in Crete. Okay? Something very similar. There's this pioneering mentality that comes with or came with Paul and Titus going out in church planting in places that have never had a church, right? Just, I mean, it doesn't get much more raw than that. Going to an entire island nation and proclaiming to them something utterly new. But people were coming to faith and what Paul does in leaving there and moving on and leaving Titus behind is there's two things. Number one, to put what remained in order. You can imagine that in those congregations there was a hot mess of things that people believed. I mean, hey, we could just go to churches around town and find a hot mess of of things that people believe even today. And they're in churches, or so-called churches. So you understand that there's going to be a lot of things that Titus is going to do in order to secure and kind of rein in some of the wild thinking that probably went on. Much of it, you know, had to do with idolatry. The very end of 1 John. He concludes that letter with this glorious benediction and you're caught up into the heavenlies. And then at the very last verse, he brings you right back down and he says, and keep yourself from idols. An odd way to end the book, but he knew his audience. And if we're going to understand the first century church, you have to understand idolatry was just the very fabric of your existence. So to overcome idolatry was something that was a monumental task and probably took much of the time of Timothy and Titus going over and trying to get people to overcome these idolatrous ways of thinking and believing. Calvin has said, rightfully so, that our hearts are idol factories, continually producing things for us to worship other than the true and living God. And as Christians, that factory doesn't completely go out of business. That factory, although our hearts, we would say, have been born again, our spirits have been born again, there's still much residual that's left behind that causes us to want to follow after other things than the worship of the true and living God. And so there's a lot that's going to go into this ordering of the church and getting people to believing the right truths and the right things, even though they're genuine believers, right? I mean, clearly Paul thinks these people are genuine believers. 
And so what he's trying to do is trying to get them focused on the truths of the Word of God. And this is why elders are so important. First thing I want to point out, elders here, notice that they're men. This is the one place in all of church, in all of scripture that we find there being this exclusive category for men to be elders. We see you here, if you read, let's read a few of these verses here. If anyone is the husband of one wife, his children are not open to the charge of debauchery. He should be above reproach. He must not be arrogant. He must hold firm the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction and doctrine to those who rebuke and contradict it. Now, I've argued and I I believe I have a good, solid, firm biblical basis to stand on that deaconesses are a biblical category within the church. But elderesses or pastorettes or what, how, I don't even know all the terminology people come up with in order to identify supposedly women pastors. It just, it just unfortunately isn't there. Does that mean that there has never been a time and a place where God hasn't used a woman in this particular category because no man stepped up? Like a Deborah, if you know the book of Judges category, if you will. There may be, I don't know, and I'm certainly not suggesting that, well, because there was this weird, odd example of one time it might have happened, therefore it opens the door in all cases, everywhere, at all times. God certainly doesn't think so. Otherwise, we'd have instruction somewhere here in Timothy or in Titus to that effect. Just like in the book of Judges, you don't see anybody else picking up the mantle and moving forward as a judge, as a woman there after Deborah. So ex- or, uh, outliers don't make a rule. They're an exception to the rule. Now, I hope nobody, I, I'm pretty confident in our congregation and anybody who's going to listen to this isn't going to be completely shocked and sideways about anything that I just said. It's here, it's in scripture, where people who are looking to the word of God for our leading, for our guidance, and so we find it pretty clear. And it's not, I I would hope, it's not something that's um, super, um, what's the right phrase, contra, uh, what's, what? All, yes, (laughs) controversial, thank you. But his second thing that he was to do is to appoint elders in every town. So the churches have, picture it, the churches have been established by Paul and Titus. And who knows, we don't have the history. Knowing Paul's character and what he does in other places, they probably established all the churches going through all the towns, then went back around and through them. And then Paul set sail and left, leaving Titus behind. So Titus was probably well known to everybody who was a believer there on the island of Crete. And he had been able to be with Paul as the churches were started, to go back through as the churches were strengthened. And now he has the authority from Paul to go around and to put into order the things within the church and now finally to establish leadership. We don't know how long he was there for. Seems long enough, right, that if he was there for a time and Paul now is writing a letter to him, 
that there had to have been enough time to pass for maturity to take place in the lives of men so that they could be elders, right? Because we know in Timothy, he said, don't lay hands on anybody quickly. Don't lay hands on a novice, lest they become puffed up and arrogant and carried away in their haughtiness, right? Don't do it quickly. Go slow, be patient, let the Lord raise up his people who will be these elders within the church. But he's to go back through these towns and to appoint elders as Paul had directed. And I believe from the rest of scripture that once Paul has Titus go back and do this, that it, was, it is then the congregation's responsibility from there on out to look for qualified men who are within the church and then to go to the leadership and have those qualified men continue to be raised up as elders within the church, much like we have today. There's no apostles today. There won't be any apostles today. So don't hold your breath for Apostle Jack to come through the doors and start appointing people and putting things in order. As much as some people want to call themselves the apostles of Chico, that's a joke. It's just not true. They're not apostles with the capital A sense of the word. So he's to go and appoint elders as I directed you. Now, he's already had direction to do this. So we know it's very easy to see that Paul, in writing to Timothy, was very aware that this letter that he was going to take from church to church to church to church was giving him... Not only the authority, here it comes from the Apostle Paul to say the things I'm going to say, but they were all probably to copy it down so that they from there could have the instructions on how and who they were to elevate (coughs) to the position of elder within their congregations. So this letter was not intended to be a personal secret letter just to Titus himself. He's writing it. He, Tim, Titus has already had this instruction in his life, I'm pretty confident. I'm sure he's seen Paul do this many times. He might have even been around when Timothy did it. Who knows? But what we do know is that here we have for us the instructions laid out by the Apostle Paul in who the church or who Titus is supposed to raise up to be leadership Within the church. Now, one thing I want to say after I take a drink of water is that in all of the instructions that are given, both in terms of what kind of people to look for in both deacons and elders, there's nothing honestly spiritually unusual. The only qualification, and it's given to elders and not to deacons or deaconesses, is that they need to be, in using Timothy language, apt to teach. Here in Titus language, it's they need to hold firm the trustworthy words so that they can give instruction and sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. So the role of elder, pardon me, the qualifications of an elder are not abs- they're not spiritually unusual meaning these aren't spiritual supermen okay oftentimes and i've seen this especially in the calvary chapel background that i had that 
pastors, because the senior pastor rules in that particular denomination. And a lot of Southern Baptist churches function this way too, I'll admit, is that the senior pastor is elevated so high and to such a degree that he literally is seen as a super individual. His spirituality is over and above that of everybody else's to such a degree that he's almost superior to everybody else. I I remember a story of a Baptist pastor one day walking down the street and uh, a little little guy bumping into him. And this Baptist minister knocked the kid down with his knee, kind of shoving him over and said, how dare you touch me? Don't you know who I am? I'm reverend, you know, whatever. Stupid head, he might as well have said. But he had this air of superiority about him, and a lot of ministers do that. A lot of ministers get that in their head, that they are somehow over and above and superior to everybody else. And that's just simply not true. And you know me, <laughs> I'm not a spiritual giant. I'm not the... the mystical muscle man or something along those lines. I'm just a guy who has been called by God to preach his word and I try hard to not sin. I work at it. But when I do, I repent. I try to repent. Sometimes I need to be called on it. Sometimes I do it before I'm called on Well, the Holy Spirit calls me, I guess, on it. But there's nothing absolutely, utterly so spiritual about me that it makes me superior. Don't let people hold something like that over you wherever you go, wherever you end up. Be wary of those kind of people. The best of sinner is still a sinner. The best minister is still one who's going to struggle with sin and struggle with his life. You want somebody who's a man of humility, and I think we see that in these characteristics. So watch out for that that kind of thing. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's start with, if anyone is above reproach, this phrase is used twice, verse 6 and verse 7. If anyone is above reproach, when was the last time any of you used that word reproach? It's just not a common word that we use. It's a helpful word. It's not common, though. What it means is that you are looking for somebody who there isn't something glaringly evident that disqualifies them from ministry. Above reproach does not mean perfect. Above reproach means that there's no one thing that you're like, oh yeah, you shouldn't be because of, and everybody sees it and everybody understands it. Above reproach means that this is an individual who is you can look at his life and go, he's spiritual, he's holy, he loves Jesus, he fits all these other categories. There's nothing glaring that stands out in his life. There's no one weird thing or one sinful thing or one thing that just immediately comes to your mind when you think of this individual's name. See what I mean? Above reproach means when I say the name of, or you or hear the name of a particular person, the first thing that comes to your mind is, oh, you sure? That should be an immediate red flag, an immediate disqualifier. If anyone is above reproach. Now here he qualifies, first of all, what 
above reproach means in terms of the family. The husband of one wife. The husband of one wife. Now, this, in our day, it kind of doesn't need to really be said, right? It, it, it's, for one, illegal to have multiple wives. And two, there is a very good social stigma against those who would have one wife and another woman on the side. That would be a bad thing as well. Even secular, even people who aren't Christians understand that. <clears throat> but not so in Paul's day. In Paul's day, <clears throat> it wasn't common to have multiple wives or to have one wife and a couple of honeys on the side <laughs> kind of thing. That wouldn't have been unusual at all. And Paul's saying here that this person, to use the Timothy language, needs to be a one-woman man. That he is a man who is devoted and dedicated to one woman, not to multiple women, right? So I've got Andy, she's my one woman, and I am a one-woman man. I got nothing else over here on the side. Every once in a while, something comes up and you hear of a pastor who has that kind of thing going on the side. And we know that's the disqualifying sin. And this is the reason why. is because he's to be devoted to one woman. Number two, his children are to be, in RESVs it says believers. In NASB, King James, New King James, it says faithful. The reason it says faithful is because that's literally the word, is faithful. But what some have done and taken this to say, well, what does it mean to be faithful, full of faith? Well, it must mean they're believers. Now, I, I have struggled with that over the years, and I found John Piper to be very helpful in this way. You know, he has had sons who have strayed from the Lord and have gone into um, periods of sin and struggle, and he is a very smart guy who knows the language as well. And he, in his study of this, with his elders, he was willing at one point to step down because he felt like, well, if this is what it's saying, then I really need to step down from the ministry. And they did a lengthy study on this together. So I'm not coming with my own ideas or opinions here, to be honest. I don't know Greek. You know me. I've never presumed to try to pretend that I do. And so in, when it comes to a discussion like this, I am dependent upon the study and work of others. But here's why I think it is faithful apart from the study and work of others. Look what it goes on to say. And are not open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination. Well, that's a definition of what it means to be a faithful child. Right? I don't think he's saying they need to be believers and adding this other thing. Because if they're believers, that implies they're going to live lives of faithfulness like this. What he's doing here, I believe, is he's saying these children need to be faithful, meaning they're not open to the charge of debauchery and subordination. And two biblical texts I want to point out. Number one is our discussion back in 1 Timothy. And if you remember from that study... I went through this very same thing then. So, but look back at there, chapter 3. It says, An overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, uh, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard. Verse 4. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, 
For if someone does not know how to manage his own household well, how will he care for God's church? Now, nowhere in there does it indicate that the children need to be believers, but what it does indicate is that they need to be exactly what this says, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. In an Old Testament passage in Deuteronomy chapter 24, in verse 16 it says, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. Now while that doesn't immediately speak to the fact that are the children believers or not, it certainly is, I, I don't think, out of bounds for us to interpret this passage that way. When Paul can interpret a passage, don't muzzle the ox when it's treading out the grain, and interpret it as saying that pastors should be paid for their work and their ministry. I think this connection is much more clear than that connection. I, I remember having a discussion several times seemed like I'd run into this person every time I went to the Shepherds Conference for like three years in a row. If you don't know, <clears throat> the Shepherds Conference is a pastor's conference that is put on at John MacArthur's Church in Southern California. Absolutely love Grace Community Church, John MacArthur. So here, nothing I say with an air of I don't like any, you know, them or some kind of pejorative nature because this isn't intended to be that at all. They do have a structure in place where if the children of any elder within the church um, walks away from the Lord for any length of time, they will remove that person from the eldership. And that's it. Because of this, this verse, this is the only verse that says this. You notice it didn't say it in 1 Timothy. We don't find it really anywhere else in any of the other epistles just right here. And so I approached the, the elder, the leader of the elder board, at least the time when I was, had gone to the Shepherds Conference this one year, because he brought it up in his breakout session. And I was talking with him and he couldn't give me, he just couldn't give me an answer other than it says, believer, we don't even, what does faithfulness even mean? That was what he kept falling back on. And I told him, well, I hope we know what it means because Second Timothy tells us that God is faithful when we are faithless. So I hope we can know what the word faithfulness means. And I asked him, well, you believe the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. So if that person was an elder, are you saying they weren't an elder the whole time? What if their kids become believers again? You put them back on the elder board? He says, yep, that's what we do. And yeah, we would say we made a mistake. If we removed him and or if we brought him back on we made a mistake we shouldn't have ordained him the very first time and I'm, and I said so then what you're saying is you can't have anybody who's an elder until they have kids that are well into their 20s all of their kids you can have no young people on your pastoral staff and he couldn't give me a straight answer and I think frankly that that that's this is an instance of just simply a bad hermeneutic a bad way of interpreting the scripture that doesn't actually bring health and benefit to the body of Christ. It actually, I think, can do more harm than good. However, I want to certainly point out that if a man has all of his children that aren't believers and have walked away, there might be something going on there, and that might be something to look into. Is it completely disqualifying? I wouldn't want to focus on just that, but if there's an issue, it'll come up in one of these other areas as well. Okay? 
So I think if there's an issue, it's not going to be just a singular issue, a one singular thing, but there's going to be problems in some of these other areas we're going to look at as well. Verse 7, an overseer, an elder, a pastor, as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. Um, I like that he begins with he must not be arrogant. Arrogant is just simply being self-centered. You don't want a leader who is self-centered. You want a leader who is Christ-centered. Because if he's self-centered, then you're going to be drawn to him, and it's going to be all about him, rather than it being all about Christ. A leader must be pointing you to Christ. He shouldn't be quick-tempered. That's a symptom of being arrogant, I believe. Because if somebody's quick-tempered, which I'm going to grant, I used to be much more quick-tempered than I am right now as I've grown in the Lord. I mean, things could probably still set me off, but in the past, especially when I was a much younger Christian, I was very quick-tempered. This would have been an area for me that was a real stumbling block. But the reason why I can at least say for myself I was so quick-tempered is because I was arrogant. (laughs) Because I felt a shot to my pride, and I didn't like the way things were going for me, and so my temper was a reaction against those things and I'm grateful that the Lord in my sanctification has been working on that with me now of course something will probably happen tonight that'll strain that a little bit and that's fine I understand Lord please help me uh, when that temptation does arise not a drunkard you, you you know the difference between somebody who is a drunkard and somebody who does drink we know that clearly We can find drunkards being a clear example of somebody who is not under self-control. And we find being self-controlled one of the characteristics in verse 8 that should be exemplified. In fact, it's one of the fruit of the Spirit, isn't it? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. They should exhibit all of those qualities, including self-control. So a pastor shouldn't be somebody who is a, known as a drunkard, meaning that he can't control himself. Not violent. You hear times, and especially certain faith preachers, it seems like, who just like kick people and punch people and stuff like that. And it's just crazy to me that... They get away with that kind of stuff. James McDonald hiring a hitman, you know, to try to knock off two of his previous elders. Gee whiz. Shouldn't be a violent individual. And not greedy for gain. Billy Graham has famously said that there are three major things that will ruin any ministry. And it's women, power, and money. That's so true. I remember when I very... Before we even planted Sovereign Joy, I was down at Grace Reformation Church in Woodland with somebody, and Mike Abendroth, I don't know if you know him, but he has No Compromise Radio, um, and he was there visiting and guest preaching, and I was telling him about the church we were planting, and he said, I have a couple of pieces of advice. Number one, never stray from the gospel, always preach the gospel, and number two, have nothing to do with the money. Those have been great pieces of advice. 
And so far, I've been able to do both. <laughs> have absolutely nothing to do with the money. I have no idea um, what goes on as far as the money goes. And I've been able to just faithfully, consistently preach the gospel over the years. <clears throat> so this advice I see wonderfully laid out here in the characteristics that elders are supposed to have. V- verse 8, they should be hospitable. They should, only, they should be able to open their lives and open their house. They should, you know, over the years, I can't tell you how many times we had sovereign joy in our house. Sovereign joy stuff at our house is because, you know, we were able, I mean, at the time we had that great big, huge front room. In fact, Joel and Nick, are, I think, are the only ones who probably remember that. Um, <clears throat> no, Melissa and Ellen. Ellen was there, I think, before too. A great big front room with that kitchen or the dining room and we could I remember there being times we had chairs set up and we had the whole place completely full with people and it just should be something that a pastor he's willing to open himself up not just his home but his life as well there, there shouldn't be you know this um, I, I'm, I have this life here but I have my private life over here and the two never mesh the two never commingle he should be a lover of what is good it's funny that that's even put in there. (laughs) And I thought about that this week. Why did Paul need to say a lover of what is good over against anything else he could have said? It would seem like a given that if you're even a Christian, you should love what is good. But if you're anything like me, there's a tendency in all of our lives to, uh, it, it, it could be something like holding a grudge and wanting to see ill of something. It could be some kind of desire. You know, there, there's this odd passage in, in the Proverbs that says, you know, or it's in, pardon me, it's in Deuteronomy, don't put a, a rock or a log in front of a blind man and watch him fall over. In the Proverbs, it says, be kind to animals. You know, these kind of things that, you know, that just, there might be honestly people who are walking with the Lord, but yet still have these propensities for these weird, honestly sinful actions. Well, I think that a lover of good means a person who avoids that kind of stuff. Stuff that, you know, laughing at things that just really shouldn't be laughed at. You know, there's just some jokes that are just inappropriate. And, and I know Christians who tell certain things and I'm just like grieved like, ah, how is your conscience clear in saying that? You know, there might be not a specific verse. Maybe I could point out to let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good and acceptable and imparts grace to those who hear, right? Ephesians 4 there. But it, it, it's just, there's this something that just has a desire for something that might not be good. They should love what is good and strive, meaning I want to be good, I want to do good, I want to see good, and things that aren't should grieve me in my heart. Self-controlled, we've already talked about. <clears throat> Upright, holy, are, he's not saying the same thing twice, I think. Upright, I think he's saying that they should be a good civic citizen. I should be upright in the, the way I follow the laws around town. That I'm somebody around town who's not known as somebody who's a villain and a lawbreaker and somebody who's shady and nefarious. That kind of thing. 
but I should be somebody who is upright in my dealings with people in a civic manner. Holy is before the Lord. Holy means that I do strive, I do try not to sin. I remember talking with somebody one time, sharing the gospel with them over there on 3rd Street, and, and I was pointing out their sin, and their retort back to me was, well, what do you think, you're not a sinner? And I go, well, I try not to. I mean, that's, you know, I don't want to sin. I I think that's a manifestation of holiness, is I try to not sin. Uh, I want to be holy as God is holy. I want to be more like the Lord. And disciplined. Disciplined, I I think, is self-explanatory. You have to have a life that's, that's ordered. I have to get... I have responsibilities. The leadership should get the responsibilities done that need done. To finish up, verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. There is a wisdom out there that says if a person is good at business... If a person is good at teaching in the public school or in the college, that if a person is good at um, being a civic engineer, that if a person is good at um, being a, a, you know, somebody who's uh, a great attorney in town, that those are the kind of people you want in leadership in the church. This says that wisdom is right out the door. Because this wisdom here, what the responsibility of the elder, the pastor is to be within the church has nothing to do with any of those things. Absolutely nothing to do with those things. In fact, it's incredibly stupid to think that because somebody excels in one particular area, that therefore means God has called them to this particular area and we ought to bring them in to do this particular task and duty. What you'll find is frustration. Because God has called the elders of the church to a very focused purpose. It is teaching the word of God, giving instruction in the word of God, presenting sound doctrine so that the church may be ordered, just like verse 5 said Titus was needing to do, and being able to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine, instruction, and the teaching that has come from sacred scripture. That's the duty My job as a pastor, I love that great book by Mercer, is the care for souls. That's what the pastor's job is. That's what the elder's job is. That's what the leadership of the church is to do, is to care for your soul. And everything else is secondary. So you can be a great, all of those other kind of things, but that doesn't mean that you're great in the care for souls. The church, church, pay attention to those people who genuinely care about souls. To close, Mark Dever tells this great story where he has this one guy who is coming to him regularly in the church. This is the early days when he started at Capitol Hill Baptist and 
hounding him about, you know, wanting to be an elder, to come on the elder board, to do the ministry. And, and he was a um, influential member um, of this one senator's staff. And so he was kind of using that weight and that experience and, and, and that understanding to be able to kind of throw himself out there and say, look, I'm so good in these other areas. I could be such of a benefit to you here within the church. Now, that sounds good on so many levels to so many people. A high-ranking staff member of a senator there on Capitol Hill being on staff there as an elder at Capitol Hill. Doesn't that make perfect sense? He contrasted it with this one guy who worked in the mailroom at some place in the government. And after work, he would come and he would look at the visitor cards from that Sunday and he would take them in and say, can I just call these people and make a connection with them? And after doing that for six, seven, eight months on his own time and finding things to do around the church and just being available and being a friend to people, there was a clear contrast between these two men's characters and it was evident which one was called to the ministry and to the eldership and which one wasn't. And of course, you have to see that it was the one who was coming and he was genuinely caring for the people there of that church, not for the one who was pursuing another position. Simply because someone has title and recognition doesn't mean that they're ones God is calling to the ministry. God has called the foolish things of the world oftentimes to confound the wise. It's wise to look for people who are trying to do their best to love the church and just care for the church and care for the body. You know, I do this because I love God's word and I love sovereign joy. And it doesn't, I've said this before, it doesn't matter if there's six people or 600 people or whatever it is in between. It doesn't matter. I care for the people who are coming here. I care for you. And that's why you're going to hear the word of God, the word of God, the word of God. Because it's not only the best thing I can give you, but it's the best thing for you as well. And for me too. Lord, <clears throat> we love you and we thank you for the people who you've called to ministry. And Lord, we pray that as we grow in our grace and in our understanding of you, 